presenting sponsor of Unscripted Direct is WalkUp Melodia, Kelly and Schoenberger. Founded in 1959 and based in San Francisco, WalkUp is one of the nation's premier plaintiff's personal injury and wrongful death law firms. While the attorneys at WalkUp are passionate about trying cases, we are also dedicated to teaching trial advocacy. WalkUp attorneys have taught at law schools across the country and trained practitioners throughout the United States and abroad. We want to thank WalkUp for supporting this podcast and our trial advocacy community and for giving Spencer a job 14 years ago. I'm glad to report we've raised our standards since then. Welcome to Unscripted Direct. I'm Spencer Polkey from Berkeley Law. I'm Justin Bernstein from UCLA. I'm speaking a little slower because my mom listened to the podcast. She told me to slow down. <laughs> oh, that is such good feedback. I'm always busy talking too fast, which is not very good for any audience. I'm not going to share the feedback she had for you. <laughs> well, in comparison, it was probably pretty friendly. Um, I'll take it. How are you doing? I, I'm doing pretty well here. Uh, my class is actually uh, winding down. Uh, next week's going to be my last class. We only go 10 weeks, so I'm bummed about that. Uh, but I'm also loving it because we're in my favorite section of the class. We're doing a bunch of flash trials. How about you? Wait, wait, wait hold on. What are flash trials? It, that, that's that's called direct examination for those scoring at home. I, I, I nice. heard his answer. I listened. I followed up. <laughs> uh, I, this is one of my favorite drills. Um, we've been doing it for years where the students get a problem. It's very short, 10 to 12 pages typically. Uh, and they have 30 to 45 minutes to prep the entire case. It's usually one-on-one. Sometimes it's two-on-two. And it is the drill that everybody is most afraid of and that everybody loves the most once they're done with. Um, because I think it just, it, it, it showers you in confidence. You're like, well, wait a minute. I don't need to spend weeks and weeks and weeks prepping this. I can just do this. I've got these skills. And they love it. And I love it too. So we do three flash trials for the last three uh, classes. That's fascinating. Have you ever considered hosting a competition of flash trials? I've considered it. Uh, uh, but hosting competitions, as I understand, is quite a challenge. Uh, maybe we'll get to talk about that here in a minute. Ooh, good segue. Uh, <laughs> I just finished hosting a competition, as Spencer knows, so I'm pretty exhausted. We'll save that spotlight for later in the episode. You look almost as good as last week, though. So, you know, not much worse for the wear. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, speaking of, we're calling Turner Spotlights for now, but we did get uh, a complaint from uh, Professor Belita DeLuna about our treatment of his suggestion last week. Uh, he said that he thought that we, uh, we glossed over it and that quote, people are saying that we glossed over it. We haven't heard from any of these people, but we'll, we'll take him at his word. Uh, but don't worry about professor Belita Luna because he'll be a guest later on the semester and he'll have a chance to come on and, and air his grievances. We've invited him to make a long list, uh, and I'm going to be wearing protective gear for the actual interview, even though it's over zoom, I'm going to be careful. Always smart. Uh, Without further ado, let's head to our first tournament spotlight, Syracuse National Trial Competition. Please introduce yourself. Hey, Justin. My name is Todd Berger. I am the Director of Advocacy Programs at the Syracuse University College of Law. Well, you've already answered the the toughest question. Is it it Berger or Berger? Uh, Uh, Berger. Yeah. Uh, Todd, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Can you tell us what's the name of your competition? So this competition is called the Syracuse National Trial Competition, uh, otherwise known as SNTC. And, and I noticed you said 
this competition because you're also hosting simultaneously the National Trial League. We can't wait to have you on at the end of the semester to talk about the results of the NTL. So today we'll focus on SNTC. It's an acronym-filled morning. Uh, tell me what makes the Syracuse National Trial Competition different from others. Well, I think uh, one of the things we we were we were envisioning when we started it, and this is the third year we've done it. Um, we, we wanted to do it early. Um, so we wanted to do it kind of before, you know, TOC got started and some of the other competitions later on in the semester. Uh, we envisioned it as sort of a competition bringing in a number of, sort of really good and well-established programs in the advocacy space. But early on, um, kind of like as a sports analogy, like a preseason NIT or something like that, right? You're going to bring in the teams that you know are going to be there kind of at the end of the year, but give them a competition early to go against each other, sort of see what they're made of and then improve from there. And then we also wanted to kind of create a few spaces for programs that are striving, trying to build themselves uh, and up and coming programs, you know, sometimes, you know, kind of, you don't want all the, you know, all just the same cool kids at the lunch table. So we wanted to kind of expand it a little bit and uh, give give up and coming programs an opportunity to uh, to get their name out there and see some good competition. That's great. Without revealing the results just yet, tell us how this year's tournament went. So I think the, you know, it was a mixed bag, candidly. Uh, I think that uh, we had a good fact pattern. It seemed to us the feedback we got was, uh, you know, people liked the fact pattern. We had a lot of sort of even splits. Um, you know, you don't want a fact pattern right where you're going to get an advantage arguing for one side. Uh, so the fact pattern, I think, was really good. Uh, I definitely, um, you know, at the end of it, uh, I think we uh, we announced some incorrect results in terms of who advanced uh for the, for the semifinalists. So we were able to go back and correct that pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, uh, ultimately we sort of wish that that wouldn't happen. We would have been able to get that out there the right way the first time. Um, and we also, I think, you know, as a story, I think nationally we've, we had, I think too few judges in some of the rounds. So I think the advocates got out there, got to work with a good fact pattern. The competition level was really good. Hopefully it was a learning experience for all the advocates, which is, you know, the most important thing. Uh, but, you know, definitely some things to, to correct moving forward, tighten up, and we hope to do that. I think it's great that uh, you're you're coming on and saying, hey, it was a mixed bag. And I think that sort of candor is is refreshing. Uh, we, we had a team at the competition, and I think your characterization is fair. There were some things that went really well. So I want to focus on that for a second. Uh, first of all, how many teams did you have? So we had 28 teams. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot for, for one site. I mean, at All-Star, we have 64, but that's across four different sites, right? That's 16 apiece. You have 28. That's, that's a lot. Uh, I also wanted to highlight the case. So uh, listeners of the podcast or people who'd attended Syracuse know that uh, you guys decided to replace the case a few weeks ago. Can you tell us about the original case and what went into the decision to change it? And then yeah, we'll talk sure. about how you, how you change it so fast. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the original case that had had come out was a case uh, that, that ultimately was a criminal case, but the defendant in the case was somebody who was sort of motivated by anti-Asian bias. Um, and it was kind of, a, I think, a combination of uh, sort of biases that have arisen as a result of, sort of coronavirus sort of coupled with kind of a, a and a January 6th analogy resulting in a, in a riot at an immigration center. Uh, and, you know, it it proved controversial. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going to speak for the author. I wasn't the author of it, but I think the author wrote it with the idea in mind that the 
portrayal of the characters involved would be realistic. Um, and so there were offensive things that this character believed and said sort of under the guise that this made it sort of a realistic pattern because this is how somebody like that would ultimately speak. Um, you know, and as you know, I know you and Spencer had, had talked about it and really had a good discussion about the role of controversial fact patterns in these trial competitions. It, it proved, uh, I think, pretty quickly to be a really controversial fact pattern. Um, I think people read it and were just generally offended by uh, some of the things that this particular character had said and the way that they articulated their beliefs. Um, and it proved kind of controversial. We had some teams say that they, you know, drop out. We had some teams basically say, if you don't change the back pattern, you know, we're going to end up dropping out. And um, from my perspective, you know, I know that there have been some controversial patterns that have been used in the past um, in some trial competitions. Um, so, you know, we thought that it may have been situated within that context, putting students in the position of having to defend unpopular people who say unpopular things, which you can do in trial, uh, and that it wasn't necessarily, you know, you know, the kind of fact pattern that was uh, different than those patterns that had come out before. Uh, but ultimately, um, and we just decided to end up pulling it, I thought that it was getting to the point where the pattern itself was beginning to overshadow the point of the competition. And the point of the competition, of course, is to train our students to be really good advocates. And I think you can kind of do that without a pattern that makes people feel uncomfortable. And we didn't want the pattern to become bigger than the learning experience. And so for that reason, we were able, you know, we pulled it and, and replaced it pretty quickly. Yeah. I think it's also fair to note that there were probably a lot of people who told you they liked the pattern and that they liked the fact that it was challenging uh, the students. I mean, I, I know that because I saw the listserv emails where a lot of people were saying that that's part of the, the goal is to challenge students. I mean, you've, you've just talked now about how you balance those two things. And I think that's, that's a smart way of thinking about it. At what point does the pattern become more significant than the, than the event? Uh, in the future, do you think that you'll do uh, sort of not controversial, but tough issues or will you shy away after this experience? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I've thought about that um, and I continue to kind of think about it and, uh, trying to figure out how we would handle that moving forward. You know, I don't think it benefits the advocacy community to sort of always have, you know, kind of fact patterns that, um, I don't mean it's in too strong a way, right, but like sanitized fact patterns that are completely devoid of controversy or having to defend controversial people. You know, that's not uh, the kind of, you know, if you do your trial work, eventually you're going to have to find yourself in a position where you have to defend people who have you know, unpopular views. And I think, you know, what you had said earlier on a podcast, I think it was, was a great point, Justin. You said, you know, it's important for the students to recognize that you're not defending those views themselves, right? You are defending people who are accused of particular acts, but that does not mean that you're defending the people's views. And in fact, there's an advocacy lesson to be learned there, right? How do you address that issue with the jury, right? Do you not address it? Because the more you talk about their unpopular views, the worse it is, or do you just take it head on? Um, so, I think there's some advocacy value in those kind of patterns. Um, but at the same time, you know, the crux of it is you could teach the students what they need to learn about openings and closings and directs and cross-examination with coming with, you know, without having to address those issues. So how do you strike the balance? This is sort of my, my sense of it, um, sketching it out. And I, of course, reserve the right to have my, my views on this evolve as, as we continue to have these discussions as a part of the advocacy community. So number one, I think that if you have patterns like this, I would not have a, as a, just a rule of thumb, right? That you can't have these, these kind of controversial patterns to deal with controversial topics or unpopular figures who said controversial things. 
But as you have those patterns, I think it's important that the extent to which there are these sensitive issues and can be hurtful issues in the pattern, that it not be gratuitous. Uh, and candidly, I think there were some things in our pattern that were unnecessary in that regard, right? Some things might've made it more realistic and then some things I think were unnecessary. So I think that's important. The other thing, and, and this is one of the things that I really came away from that as we were having discussions, even with our own students, the witness, your students were gonna have to play witnesses. And those witnesses were going to have to get up there and they were going to have to say things, right, that obviously they're, they're like fake, you know, characters, but they were still going to have to say things that would be very uncomfortable for anyone to say. Um, and I think we got a lot of pushback from students who say, I understand, right, you can't always, you know, choose, you know, your, your clients and your clients sometimes do controversial things. Can I, but, can I interrupt you with a question? Yeah, sure. So this sure. is something that's it's always made me wonder, and, I, and I'll admit when I did competitions when I was younger and uh, I didn't play witnesses, but people have said, you know, I'm uncomfortable playing a role because this character expresses a view I, I really disagree with. That makes sense. I've never heard a student say, I'm not comfortable playing this role because the person's an admitted murderer. Right. So it, it, isn't, isn't it interesting? And, and I, I think in some ways I can understand it, but it's sort of interesting that people are often more uncomfortable playing a role that expresses views they disagree with than heinous acts sometimes that they would never commit. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of the, the irony, if you call it that, of, of uh, what happened with our competition, right, is we replaced the one pattern with another pattern that's, I don't know if you guys were able to discern, I think people probably were, right? John Benet. John Benet Ramsey. So, right. you know, when a, a murder of a small child is the least controversial thing, you know? Right. Maybe you were playing the long game. You wanted to do John Benet, and the only way to, to make it seem not controversial was to start with, an Asian hate crime. <laughs> That's our, our version of a, a three-dimensional chess that was Right, you, you did a nice job of, of moving the goalpost. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that new case, how did you guys get it out so fast? I mean, you pulled it, and then within 24 hours, we had a new case. You know, it was really interesting. So uh, at the time that we uh, were thinking about you know, what pattern we were going to use, our competition coordinator at the law school uh, is a woman named Tyler Jeffries. And she had been, uh, she's a practicing attorney, but also kind of works on the side as our competition coordinator. She had been working on her own fact pattern. Oh, um, that, that, that worked out nicely. It did. And so we kind of had it there. It wasn't totally ready to go, um, but uh, she kind of had it there and we knew that we had, and then really quickly uh, her and uh, right, our longtime trial team coach, Joanne Van Dyke, uh, just kind of pulled, uh, you know, one or two all-nighters and kind of got it ready to go out. I, I, I'd have loved to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. And Tyler, how close is it? She's like, oh, you know, I think in a month. Like, how about in a day? <laughs> that was pretty much what happened. It's amazing what you can get done when you don't have a choice, you know. That's exactly right. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that there was an issue with announcing the, the teams. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, so... so... If you look at our rule, the actual rule as it was written, right, was um, so that the teams advance based on win-loss record, total number of ballots, and then the actual rule says point deferential and then strength of schedule. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our tab room, uh, right, the, the people who run our tab room had said, and you appreciate this from the AMTA perspective, right, they said, well, in AMTA and our tab room, uh, right, uh, Tyler Jeffries and Adam Ladig, who's one of our alums who runs our tab room, 
and said, well, we should do this from the, the AMTA perspective, right? Where and and we, AMTA is the American Mock Trial Association, uh, the yeah. college competition for anyone who doesn't know. And strength of schedule goes before point deferential. The idea being that you can sort of increase your point deferential by sort of beating up on weaker teams. Um, and so the idea that, that should be the tiebreaker first. And that was kind of um, the position that they had and can communicate, you know, there's miscommunication in terms of um, how we would add that up with, uh, you know, our competition directors and which one would go first. And so at the end, it ended up, we ended up calculating the first time around switching strength of schedule and point deferential. So we put strength of schedule first and then point deferential. And uh, that was just was in contravention of our own rules. Um, and then right, that got pointed out and we had to redo the calculations. And sounds calculation, like you fixed it fast. We did. I mean, it literally took 10 minutes to redo the calculations. Uh, we have sort of a quarterfinal. We consider right having eight teams, the, the top eight teams as a part of our quarterfinal, although that's our fourth round. We don't announce that. It didn't redo um, who the top eight teams were. It required some reshuffling of the top eight teams, but it didn't redo that. But it did redo uh, the semifinal and two teams uh, that we had announced were not in the semifinal. And then two teams who were in the quarterfinal got bumped into the semifinal. How did those two teams take it? You know, I... My sense was very graciously, um, you know, the, the two teams uh, were, were St. John's and were Temple. Um, and they well, th think, those are programs that are, are always respectful and professional. I'm sure it was a bummer, uh, to say the least, but it doesn't surprise me they handled it well. No, I mean, it's a tough phone call, you know, for us to make. And then in turn, it's a tough phone call for the coaches to make. Right. Because they have to tell their students and, uh, and that can be really disappointing. But um, I know. Uh, you know, Sarah Jacobson, longtime coach at Temple and used to be their director of trial advocacy program. So we worked together uh, as public defenders in Philadelphia a long time ago. So I know Sarah and I uh, reached out to her and uh, she was incredibly gracious. And so was uh, Liz Levy. So, um, you know, I always really appreciate, uh, you know, how they handled it. So, yeah. And, and I think anybody who's hosted a tournament knows that sometimes you just make a mistake. Like, and, and you know, it, no matter how many times you've done it, like, I, I'm sure if I were on the receiving end of that call, I'd be bummed, but I'd also know there but for the grace of god go i like right. you know i we were hosting a competition this week and i hope i didn't announce the wrong teams to the final and you know sometimes you know stuff happens um one other question you'd also mentioned uh the uh that you didn't have as many judges as as you'd hoped and and we competed in the competition we had six judges across our four trials so we had two judges twice and one judge twice uh obviously it's disappointing to have more judges but it, it seems like you're not the only tournament that's affected by this. Uh, everyone I talked to appears to be having harder time recruiting judges than a year ago. I mean, a year ago, everyone said, gosh, one of the nice things about being online, it's so easy to get judges. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to pay for parking. They don't have to put on pants. So right. uh, they just show up. And a year later, it seems like a drought. Yeah. How would you explain that? You know, I, so to that, I mean, I think we, right, we, intended to have kind of a traditional competition with three judges per round. Um, and then obviously it got, you know, we wanted to create kind of more opportunities. And the other thing too, is uh, I think in the zoom era where people don't have to travel, you get a lot more applications. Um, so we wanted to, you know, create the opportunities. It's tough to always choose between, right. All these really great programs. So we ended up with 28 the year before that we had 22. I think to some extent it was the expanded size, but I don't think that was the big issue. I think the bigger issue is kind of like you said, just the ability to recruit judges. My sense of it, I don't know if you have an opinion on this, but my sense of it was 
if you go back to the spring of 20, the in-person competitions got canceled, right? Uh, for the most part, I think after, by May, I think Baylor was able to get their top, top gun up and running virtually, but right, like uh, AJ was canceled, NTC was canceled. So when we came around to the fall of last year, I think there was a sense of, okay, we're adjusting, you know, we want to get back out there doing competitions. Um, and there was kind of an enthusiasm from judges to sort of do something that looked like not a return to normalcy, but that we were able to sort of rise above the challenges of the pandemic. But a traditional trial fact pattern, right, which can take three or four hours to try, that's a long time to sit in front of a computer. Uh, and I think after doing that for a year, I think that there was just a kind of a Zoom fatigue with judging that might have set in. Uh, you know, I know I heard from a few people who said, like, that's just a long time to be in front of a computer. Um, and I just think it got a lot harder to recruit judges to sort of sit for longer, longer patterns. Um, I think you're right. I think it's that. Uh, and I also think it's the fact the world is different than it was a year ago. I think that a year ago, most people just weren't leaving their house. Right. So if I'm stuck in front of my screen, I might as well be watching a trial competition, giving back. Whereas now it's like, I could do that. Or I, I could go watch James Bond or I could go outside and play with my dog, you know, like, yep. so I think the, the opportunity cost is higher. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, people are, you know, they're probably back in their offices too. Right. Um, right. So, right. you know, a little bit busier, you know, in that context, a little bit harder to kind of take the time as opposed to when you're just working from home. So um, yeah, I, th I think all of that contributed to it. And what we did is, right, we, we kind of used our usual channels of reaching out. And um, we thought, you know, we would be able to kind of get those, you know, the three judges per panel, um, even though we can't, we knew we are, we, you know, we were looking like we were going to have to make a real aggressive last second push. And we did, and that kind of filled some of the spots, but we weren't ultimately able to do it um, across the board. So, um, you know, I think next year, the goal is we're going to be back in person, hopefully. Um, goals of a bit of a smaller competition and then um, you know hopefully we won't be in this particular situation but well, well know, before, before we before we talk about next year let's celebrate the winners from this year yeah yeah yeah. can, talk, can you tell us uh, who were the final four who faced in the finals and who's our Syracuse national champion all right so the the finals were uh, St. Mary's uh, versus GW in one semifinal round. The other semifinal round was South Texas uh, versus Cumberland. Uh, so Samford. Great schools. Uh, great schools. I mean, really, you know, great advocacy programs across the board. Uh, and South Texas and GW advanced to the final and uh, GW, uh, GW won. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, GW was the only team that was undefeated uh, throughout the entire competition. Um, so really like, you know, remarkable performance. Congrats to them. Congrats to their coach, John Singer. Um, and just a really great performance, but really congrats to all the teams. I think if you, you know, the level of advocacy was, was amazing across the board. One, one thing you also did, and I should have mentioned this earlier, I love how you live stream the rounds. It's hard to do that and it makes for better viewing experience. So as somebody who was, trying to watch a little bit while we were running our own competition. Uh, I appreciated very much the live streaming. Todd, thank you for talking to us. Uh, thank you for your candor and congrats most of all on being done hosting. Uh, hopefully you get some sleep before you go back to hosting the National Trial League. We'll have yeah. you on in a few weeks when that's all over. Absolutely. Thank you, Justin. It was great to be here. Thank you. That was a great interview, Justin. I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that, that, 
Todd joined us, and it was really interesting to learn about the, you know, truly the struggles that, that exist when that come along with hosting a competition. It's not easy. It just is not easy. And I'm so glad he came on and he explained that all to us. You know, it also raised the issue of, you know, uh, you know what problems, um, you know, we should be using in our competition, something we've discussed before, something that's an important ongoing conversation. And you, you made an interesting point, which had me thinking, which was, well, what about, you know, the situation where students asked to portray, you know, an alleged murderer? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting, uh, you know, counterpoint, which I agree is an interesting counterpoint. And I guess it got me thinking, I would just say that this is going to be a challenge no matter what. I think the benefit, the good thing is having a conversation about it and being open about it. Uh, and there's going to be line drawing issues to be sure, you know, where do you draw a line, that kind of thing. It's not going to be easy. Um, but I got to thinking, you know, I think it really has to do with immutable characteristics. You know, if it's getting at um, the immutable characteristics of a witness or, you know, some other person involved in the problem, that's tough territory there. Um, because, you know, there's no immutable characteristic really of an alleged murderer um, that, you know, they come in all shapes, sizes, types, etc. Um but, you know, uh, you know, certain, you know, ethnicities or gender identities, there are, you know, predominantly unfair notions associated with them and to, you know, whether it's stereotypes, that kind of thing, to get into territory where that's going to be portrayed well or not. I just think that's a huge challenge. I mean, there, for example, I, I'm, as I've said, straight white male, that's who I am. So, you know, I've got, you know, blinders onto a lot of this stuff, but, um, there are things about Nebraska and people make certain Nebraska jokes. Like I take it personally and I'm, that just makes you, me you think. mean about Nebraskans or the, uh, the football team. Cause the football team has really gone downhill. It truly has. I've got this soft spot when people say the N on the helmet is for knowledge. I like, I don't, I don't exactly. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I don't exactly get why that is funny. I mean, I get, I like, I, I, I understand it's a dig at our, you know, understanding capacity for things like knowledge and our intelligence generally. And spelling. But yeah. And spelling fair. Uh, but weirdly it like, it, it bothers me. And I guess my point is that if something so silly and trivial, uh, bothers me like that, uh, I can only imagine, uh, you know, if we are delving into an immutable characteristic of a person, a group, et cetera, that if our problem relates to those issues, it's going to be potentially traumatic to deal with as a student. So anyway, I know I talk about this topic a lot, um, but I just appreciate that it came back up. Really liked the interview. I've been talking a lot. What what were your thoughts? So I, I really appreciated that Todd was willing to come on and chat with me. Uh, look, everybody who's hosted a competition has made a mistake before, has had a problem, right. has something go wrong. Uh, I, I have a good friend who announced the wrong teams at the closing ceremonies, not even because of a math error, literally just read the wrong teams. Yep. And that stinks, right? Like that's a bummer for the teams. It's a bummer for you as a host and, and there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. Right. So I think the courage to come on and be like, Hey, we made a mistake. We fixed it. Here's how we're going to deal with it. Uh, I, I, I think he's a stand-up guy. All right. Let's turn to our next tournament spotlight. Tell us your name. Hi, my name is Justin Bernstein. I'm the Director of Trial Advocacy at UCLA School of Law. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on Unscripted Direct. It is yeah, really I, wonderful. I, I was told uh, I was told to be the other guy interviewing me. Uh, other guy, other guy. Oh, the co-host? Oh, the, the taller one, yeah. 
the the former co-host <laughs> right <laughs> i like that no yeah he's fine he's been on a hot seat though uh lately uh a bit of a cold streak unfortunately for his tournament teams but anyway um no you, you taking a jab at uh my three teams in a row that didn't win a competition that's all right that's all right we'll, we'll get back on the horse <laughs> uh this is fun man um to be a guest does your chair does the seat feel different by the way Feels good. I, I appreciated the uh, the fresh fruit you put in my my green room. That was nice. Yeah, I, I failed to exclude any of the brown M and M's. I just on principle, I'm not doing that. So I hope you don't mind too much. My publicist will have things <laughs> to say. All right. So, what makes the verdict different? So the key aspect of the competition is wrapped up in the name, the verdict. We use lagers, uh, and unlike other competitions, we don't have them issue. Uh, scores, uh, like traditional competitions, we have lay jurors complete verdict forms on the merits. So your results in the competition are based entirely on whether you're actually able to persuade real people. Hmm. Uh, And as a result of that, we do a lot of things differently because if you're going to make the competition about merits, that sort of has an immediate cascade effect on other changes you have to do. So the trials had to be more realistic. And that means when there's motions in limine, which discuss what jurors are going to hear, they can't be in the room. So we'd have our trial starting with the judges and the advocates with the jurors sequestered, uh, not able to enter the room until we'd been given the all clear, the motions eliminate have been resolved during the trial. Like, in hey, real can life, I ask you on that? Can oh, yeah. I ask you a, pause right there. Yeah. Were the MILs resolved variably? In other words, they weren't all denied basically. Was it, what did the judges have more license to do what they wanted to do? Oh, yeah. So when we did the judge instruction, and I guess I'm jumping ahead here, one of the cool things about the competition is that because the merits mattered more, we used exclusively real judges. So every single judge in every single trial was either a current or retired judge, uh, which made the quality of judging excellent. But also the cool part for me was when I did my judge orientation, it was like it was it was kind of surreal. It's me talking to you know all these judges mm-hmm. uh, about how we're going to do the rounds, and I said, you know, have you done trial competitions before? And every one of them, I think, except for one, had judged a trial competition before. And so I said, I'll just focus on what's different. One of the things I told them is, you're usually told let everything in. Right. Don't do that. Uh, you're usually told let the students argue more than they would in real life because we're evaluating their performance. I said, don't do that. Uh, if you think there needs to be a speaking objection, uh, then have a sidebar and the bailiff will move the jurors into a breakout room so you can have a sidebar, <laughs> uh, but otherwise no speaking objections in the sense of how you would normally uh, preside over a case. And as a result, the trials looked so much more like real trials. I mean, I, I just minutes ago, we finished our final round. I'll tell you the, the winners in a moment. Uh, but it felt more like a real trial than I'm used to seeing in trial competitions. And I'm, I'm biased, but I mean, people were asking for limiting instructions. Uh, the attorneys were asking for sidebars. At one point, you could see they weren't sure whether they wanted to ask because they didn't want to annoy the jury mm-hmm. about having the jury have to leave the room. Uh, so it presented real challenges and realistic challenges. So going back to your question, we had the motions eliminate, and then the jury would come back in. And yes, they were variable rulings. Sometimes it was deny. Sometimes it would... They grant the, uh, the motion. Sometimes they defer ruling or grant it in part. Um, we had actual sidebars, as I mentioned, during the rounds. Uh, we had limiting instructions. So all those things were things that were different. Uh, 
we also, for our jurors, we were pretty particular about who could be a juror. You could not be a lawyer. So practicing lawyers and mid lawyers, they were not uh, allowed to participate because they normally wouldn't be on a jury. Right. Uh, you had to be 18 years or older. And our one disqualifying factor was if you lost a loved one to a drug overdose, you couldn't participate given the nature of the case. The case involved a movie studio making a biopic of Kurt Cobain and the allegation that the director encouraged the lead actor to use method acting. He used heroin, he overdosed and died. And since it's a wrongful death suit, we figured somebody who'd lost a loved one to heroin or a drug overdose likely would be stricken from right. that. Right. Yeah. So uh, we also gave the team's demographic data of their jury pool. Interesting. So wow. age, education, where they live in the country, uh, ethnicity, gender, everything. Um, and of course, and this was a great idea from Professor Susan Poles at Loyola, we also had attorney evaluators. So when I uh, stop recording with you, I'm going to send everybody their ballots from the competition. And that means that we're able to compare how attorney evaluators scored the round on mock trial performance, opening, closing, cross, direct, versus how the juries issued their verdicts. Have so you already done this analysis? I've done just a sort of top level analysis. Um, we're going to dig into the data a lot more, uh, but we got I mean, to revisit this. Yeah. Th th some of the findings are just fascinating. For example, does advocacy matter? Is it just the facts? Is it just the witnesses? Does advocacy matter? Uh, the answer is yes. The, ad the advocate <laughs> quality makes it right. It's, it's a relief. Otherwise <laughs> we're out of job or at least I'm out of a job. You're still a trial lawyer. Uh, <laughs> Does the witness credibility make a difference? Yes, we found a significant positive correlation between assessment by the attorneys of witness credibility and jury verdicts. Stunningly, the advocacy scores were more predictive of jury verdicts than witness credibility was in predicting jury verdicts. That's that heartening is, for it's, us it's heartening for you, for you as, a, as a plaintiff's lawyer. Yes, <laughs> um, and then it, it also demonstrated that. You know, what we're doing here in, in mock trial competitions is a strong way of, of developing and measuring trial advocacy skills. That is super cool. Yeah. Um, I know you've kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, at least by implication, but why'd you pick this format? So I remember when I was uh, teaching at UC Irvine uh, and they opened their doors as a new law school, then Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who's now the dean at your law school. Amazing person. He's awesome. Uh he said something at one of those functions that really stuck with me. He said, when you, when you do something new, you want it to be similar enough to what exists that it's legitimate, but different enough that it's necessary. And so before we launched a competition, I wanted to do something that I felt like was actually make a difference, um, not just sort of hosting it to host it. And it felt like one thing that isn't happening right now in the trial of communities, we're not using juries. Uh, so I thought, Let, let's see how to do this. And now there were challenges because... I'm used to recruiting judges. We had to figure out a way to recruit lay jurors. Uh, we got some sponsorship. We gave them, we bribed them. We gave them Amazon gift cards nice. for participating. Yeah. So we had an average of 8.1 jurors per trial. Jeez. Uh, yeah. It took a ton of work by, uh, by our team to get all those jurors, but it was super cool to actually see them there and participating. Uh, so yeah, I think the reason was we thought this would be the most educational, realistic way to put on a trial. Uh, you know, this makes me wonder, did you for even for a moment think that 
we should explore some way of doing a little voir dire with all these folks Does that cross your mind at all. I mean, that adds a lot more complexity and time and you can't strike people, of course, but wow, they're sitting there, you know? Yeah. So yes, we, we thought about uh, whether we would introduce voir dire. My thought was probably not in year one. Uh, I figured even if we just do the bare basics of this, right, right. it's going to be novel enough uh, that it's, that it's valuable. But I do think that we can add some wrinkles in the future. For example, this year, the jury verdicts were about liability. What percentage of liability could you achieve against your opponent? I am sure that in some future year, we'll have damages. How much do you win as, win as plaintiff minus what did you give up as, as defense? I mean, we could have a team that, that owes money at the end of a tournament. <laughs> uh, and I, I could see Voidir particularly for the finals. And the way I would do it probably is you wouldn't have to excuse the jurors. You would just decide ahead of time which ballots are going to count. Right. Yeah, right. So I, I definitely think it's doable. And it's something I think we're more likely to do that in person. Yeah. Right. Uh, hopefully Ooh. next year. Yeah. I love it. Um, maybe uh, somehow I can convince you to let us be a participating team. Um, but how did you pick the participating teams this year? So we limited to eight schools. We know that's an unusually small number, but because we'd never recruited lay jurors, we thought it was important to make sure we had enough per trial. So I didn't want to overextend our, our recruiting efforts. And we picked eight schools that we thought were excellent at trial advocacy, uh, great, great uh, competition results, schools that are consistently ethical because you can't sort of go to a protest committee very easily to, to unwind something that happens around. If a juror's mind is affected, it's hard to know how. So we wanted schools that are going to play fair. And we prioritize schools that hosted us frequently at competitions. Uh, we, we've been grateful that people have been so kind in inviting us. We wanted to extend the favor. So the inaugural field at the verdict uh, was in alphabetical order. Baylor, Cumberland, Denver, Drexel, Fordham, Loyola, Pacific McGeorge, and Stetson. Amazing field. Oh my gosh, they were so good. Um, now, I suspect that even Justin Bernstein couldn't run this completely on his own without any assistance whatsoever from anybody else. Is it possible that a couple of people pitched in a little bit to help you? Oh my, I, I, I had so much help. Uh, J.D. Reese, uh, an alum of the law school and one of our coaches, he's a lawyer at Shepard Mullen in L.A., he was our, our tournament director. He did all the hard stuff in terms of judge recruitment, jury recruitment. He worked as uh, a tech person this weekend uh, running our Zoom. He answered all my, my calls when I had crazy ideas, and he would tell me, mm, that one's a little too crazy. <laughs> uh, we had three students who helped me write the case, Sarah Stebbins, Kenny Capacious, Stephen Johnson. Uh, we had contributions from a local attorney who's an alum, Mark Bowdy, who helped helped us get juries, uh, jurors. Excuse me. Uh, and we had a, a team of students who were serving as bailiffs because if you think timekeeping is hard, imagine if you're timekeeping and moving people in and out of breakout rooms. At one point, we had one juror who moved themselves and sent it to a, 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 the jury room. They sent themselves to another trial. So That's possible? So <laughs> like the judge, another dimension. <laughs> right. The judge had to give a limiting instruction to, if you were in another trial that seemed very similar. Uh, disregard dis what you thought. Disregard what you heard there. So. Yeah, there, there are always some hiccups. Uh, how'd you get those jurors? Friends, family, friends of friends and family. I asked my students to all get two. Uh, and so those jurors uh, would then be, be asked if they knew anybody who wanted to do it. And the $40 Amazon gift card helped. Uh, but mostly it was like their students asking friends. My mom judged, or my mom was a juror in round four. So, I mean, that's great. Yeah. I mean, whichever team won her, her ballot. I mean, I haven't been able to persuade her of anything in years. So, you know. <laughs> Okay. So how'd you pick the winners? Uh, and you know, how, you know, 
the last winner will be that of the final round. How do you pick that person, that team? Okay. So the verdict form has three questions. Question one is, did the plaintiff prove that defendant's actions caused or contributed to the victim's death? And if the answer is no, that's the end of the form. Plaintiff didn't meet their burden. So plaintiff gets zero points and defendant for that ballot gets 100. But let's say they put a yes to that question. Question two, did the defendant prove their affirmative defense saying the victim contributed to his own injuries or his negligence contributed to his own injuries? If the answer to that question is no, that means the plaintiff gets 100. They, they, all the liabilities on the defendant, so plaintiff gets 100 points, defendant gets zero. So do you, how many, do you know the percentage of, of ballots that were either one of those out of curiosity? Yeah, of course I do. It's 34%. Uh, we had uh, <laughs> 20% of jurors answered no to question number one and said uh, no liability whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then 14% said yes to question one. There was liability against the defendant and no liability against hmm. the, the plaintiff or no contributory negligence by the plaintiff. Uh, so that means that right there, 34% never even got to the last question. Uh, and the balance of our jurors got to question three, asked to apportion liability, split the 100% between the two parties. And of course, that would be their score. So a plaintiff could earn 100, zero or some number in between. And the defense was always the inverse of that, 100 minus mm-hmm. that number. And your score for a round was simply the average points you got per juror verdict. Wow. All right. So then how did you decide who won the final round? Yeah. So we, we knew that even if there was going to be a case imbalance, uh, that would even out over the course of the prelims because everybody tries the case twice. Let's say it's a 70-30 plaintiff case. No problem. You're getting 70 points in your plaintiff rounds on average. Mm-hmm. Great, but you're only getting 30 in your defense rounds. What do you do about a singular solitary final round, though? Yeah, so this was uh, this is where I got to be diabolical. Uh, if the teams had met before, the plan was to have them flip sides, and they would have to beat the score that the other team achieved on that side the first time around. Interesting. And I a like tie, it. Would, tie would go to the number one seat. But if they, if they had not met, met before, and in t- in, indeed in this competition, they had not met before, here's how it worked. The number two seed at the closing ceremonies would name the score the plaintiff had to achieve. And the other team would then choose their side. You cut, I choose. So you pick a number that's too, too easy to meet, they'll choose plaintiff. Pick a number that's too hard to meet, they'll choose defense. Uh, that is diabolical and clever as clever as I'd expect from you. Actually, that was that's Thank I like you. it. That that uh, was probably my, my favorite uh, implementation of the of the competition. So what came of it? What were the results? Our uh, semifinal teams, uh, the third and fourth place teams, were Denver in fourth and Cumberland in third. Our number two seed going into the the playoffs was Loyola. And our number one seed was Fordham. I mean, Fordham was dominant in the prelims. <laughs> their, their worst result on defense was 61%. So they won all of their rounds in their defense. Wow. And their worst result on plaintiff was 77%. Wow. Yeah, they were, they were way ahead in the prelims. But then it's, you know, it's going to be 0-0 zero, zero heading into the, the playoffs. Yep. So Loyola had to throw out a number. And they said, can we have a breakout room and, and, and some time to think? And I said, you can have no breakout room in 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we gave them, we gave both teams all of the information they'd need to make a decision. Uh, the average verdict result for the competition was 53-47 for plaintiff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we told them each other's scores. And Loyola caucus, they threw out a number 55. Fordham said, we'll go plaintiff. And in a final round with uh, 17 jurors. Wow. 
It was a score of 60.2 on average, which means Fordham is the winner Ooh. of the inaugural verdict competition. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Loyola did wonderfully. I mean, you compare it against uh, what Fordham had done before, but Fordham uh, met, their, met their threshold and they won. That's, that's, ex- right. that's exciting for both, honestly. Yes. So they're both excellent. Loyola uh, pulled Fordham down from where they'd been. I mean, that was definitely the lowest result Fordham had gotten on, on Plaintiff. But also Loyola's defense average was great going into the finals. Hmm. And Fordham scored a, a strong victory. So, I mean, you saw these two heavyweights sort of pulled into a real clash. That is a wonderful competition. It, 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 clever, creative, interesting, fun to hear about after the fact. Um, I'm excited to see it next year. Me too. Hopefully in person. Well, knock on wood. <laughs> well, I, I tried to I tried to really hold his feet to the fire there, Justin. I don't know. What what do you think of the interview? Great interview. Uh, love that guy. It's I mean it's hard over over just audio, but he sounds handsome. <laughs> uh, well, he's 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 charming at least, I'll give you that. And humble. <laughs> Extremely humble. <laughs> uh, should we should we turn to our, our question of the week even though you've asked me a bunch of questions this week uh yes yes i think i'll get you on this last one but yeah i think we should turn to the question of the week question of the week question All of right. week. i'll ask you first so okay i know that uh when you were at berkeley and you graduated you you were coaching the team and now while you're still involved a little as a coach you as i understand it you're primarily involved as a professor there teaching part-time and as an administrator overseeing a really successful trial program, how and why did you decide to make the transition from coaching primarily to oversight and teaching? Yes. Um, well, that was that has been a process, and it's really hard because you know probably this is true of a lot or maybe even everybody who does what we do. The reason that you originally get into it is because you love coaching. You know, like that's the thing that you do originally. And I'll never forget the first time I coached my first fall out of, you know, out of law school and got asked back by a couple of students to coach. We won the competition. It was, you know, you know how that is. It is, it just sends you over the moon. And so at first, you know, I was coaching multiple teams every year before we really even had what you'd call a program. You know, we just had a few teams that were getting more and more active and I was coaching a whole bunch of them. And I just loved it. I mean, I was like, you know, yeah, coaching till late in the night, many nights a week. Um, but then, you know, and this is an interesting uh, dilemma that I think, again, a lot of us face is that, you know, life advances and you get to a point where, you know, um, you know, you have children and, you know, more responsibilities as you advance in, perhaps if you have an adjacent career like I do, you necessarily run into just having less time to do the thing that you love doing. It's it's such a challenging thing. So I guess it was never a explicit choice that I will shift roles, um, but it was something that happened over time and of necessity. In other words, and I've seen this happen too, if I didn't have the ability to switch over into a more administrative role, I couldn't do this. You know, if this role didn't exist for me, I couldn't do any of this, right? Which would be really hard because I love this stuff. So it's been of necessity over time that I've switched into a role where I, I now manage all of our teams. I recruit our coaches. I, you know, monitor how they're doing. I still try to get in there. And I, of course, I teach my class and, you know, work with the students one-on-one in that context. Um, and I still try to get in there and coach a little bit. And I always have dreams that I'll, I'll coach a little bit more. Um, 
But that's a, that's a vague answer to a, a tricky question I think a lot of us face over time. And that's been my solution. I'm so fortunate that the way Berkeley is structured, that's been possible to kind of create and then fill this role. Um, but it's the way it's without it, I wouldn't be able to do this at all. So even though I wish I could coach more, um, this is, uh, this is the way I can still be really involved. So there you go. I mean, I, I tease you a bunch, obviously, but the results I think speak for themselves. I mean, whatever you're doing is working because the, the teams from Berkeley are always good. Your competition records, fantastic. I mean, your TOC champion, uh, you know, Tyla, uh, playoff playoff team you're in you're out and so uh, you guys are enormously successful and I, and I know it's hard to go from coaching to administration but you've been a very effective administrator and I, and I talk to your coaches they feel really empowered to to run their teams I appreciate that I appreciate that all right let's uh, get you back on the hot seat though here um, my question for you is if for whatever reason you could not coach or teach trial advocacy what would you do so earlier you said you know my team's on a three competition losing streak <laughs> now now you're telling me that i can't coach or teach is there something you know about my job that i don't know i i'm just saying i've been you know i've ear to the ground and i know you're on the hot seat uh right. and it's not just the witness hot seat but i you know you're you know uh it's it's going to be tough for you to recover i think from you know from having only won two competitions so far this year so i i'm just you know i'm just trying to be a supportive friend I appreciate that. So uh, I guess I'll ask one clarifying question. When, when you say, what would I do? Do you mean like if right now at, at age 39, because it, my birth certificate would say I'm 40, but you can't turn 40 in a pandemic. So it doesn't count <laughs> until the pandemic's over. Uh, so age you 39, I've got to sort of restart my career. Or is it if I could go back, I'm 22. I just finished college at UC Berkeley. Go Bears. What would, go I, Bears. What would I choose? Yeah, go Bears. What would I choose to do then? I would say either, although the problem is you probably got to go with now because, you know, you wouldn't have the context of knowing that this is something that you do and you can make a career out of at age mm-hmm. 22, whereas you could at your perpetual 39. Okay. So if, if tomorrow, for whatever reason, I, I can't coach or teach trial advocacy, and, and I'll, I'll sort of rule out the, the easy answer, which is I probably would want to be a trial lawyer. I want right, to go back right. to practice and, and I'd want to focus more on trials than, than corporate work. Hmm. Um. I think I would enjoy being a writer. I don't know if I'd be good at it. I don't know if I'd be successful, but I think I'd enjoy trying. <laughs> what kind of writing? Fiction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things I love about the trial competitions and, or writing cases is it's a combination of the creativity and the logic. I, I mean, plotting novels and uh, you know, obviously much harder than writing a mock trial case, but I know that when I get into it, I really like it. So I, I think I would, you know, if I had a sort of second career, that would be a fun thing to do. Again, I have no belief that I'd be good, uh, but it would be fun to try. But, but again, thanks for pushing me out the door of my current job. I'm going to try to keep this one in the meantime. <laughs> I'll do everything I can to help you keep it. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, just in case. All right. So who won this week's question of the week? Who won? Okay. Well, let me just check in here. We had 8.1 jurors to go ahead and decide this for us, which was great. Uh, And I'm just tabulating the numbers there. turns out that by a margin of about 60-40, I won. 60.2%. I got it. So, you know, there you go. I guess it turns out I'm the winner. Sounds like a great event. This week's guest was Sarah Williams. You had a chance to sit down with Sarah. Uh, I heard the interview. 
She's so much fun. She's wonderful. Yeah, totally. I've never got to meet Sarah in the real world. I've only met her over Zoom. And this was a suggestion from one of our listeners to speak with Sarah. And I so appreciate the suggestion and getting to know her. And as you can tell, I can't wait to get to meet her in the real world. What do you think? I think getting to know her is a great way to describe it. Because sometimes you get to to learn about somebody. But sometimes when the person is, is that outgoing and dynamic as she is, and as right. everybody's about to, to, to see and hear, you really do feel like you get to know her. Uh, her reputation precedes her. Sarah Williams. Tell us your name. My name is Sarah Williams. Sarah, welcome to Unscripted Direct. It's wonderful to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a 2006 graduate of Cumberland um, School of Law. I am a personal injury lawyer. I have been um, practicing personal injury since 2013. Prior to that, um, I was an insurance defense lawyer, so I've always done civil trial. Um, In addition to that, (laughs) I am an adjunct professor of trial advocacy at Cumberland. I teach currently advanced trial skills civil and sometimes I'll teach the depositions and technology course um, and then I also coach um, teams with the national mock trial team and then you know at some point I also have a family so I have a an eight-year-old third grader and a, a spouse and two French bulldogs so you're not very busy then it sounds like no not at all <laughs> <laughs> well let's start off with this where are you from I'm an army brat, but my family is from Tallahassee, Florida, and I was born in Tallahassee um, because we were in transition when my mom was far along. So I was born in Tallahassee, but lived in Holland, uh, White Sands, Missile Range, New Mexico, and Nuremberg, Germany. And then when I was in the ninth grade, we moved back to Tallahassee. And so I graduated from high school in Tallahassee and went to Florida State and then moved to Birmingham. And so I've now lived in Birmingham, Alabama, longer than I've lived anywhere for a time period. So I guess I should say I'm from here, but I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) What, what, you know, I've, I was not a a military family member growing up, but I've talked to so many folks, so many folks who are. And it just sounds like such an interesting experience growing up to be, as you say, an army brat, that kind of thing. What, what do you think that brings to who you are now, that experience of moving around all over the world multiple times growing up? It's funny. When I was younger, I was really frustrated with the experience because when we moved back to Tallahassee, like everyone grew up together and I felt like I really missed something. But then when I went to law school and started practicing, I realized that having the ability to relate to different people and different perspectives really serves, has served me in in every capacity of of my employment from, you know, handling claims as an insurance defense lawyer to, to being a personal injury lawyer and then students from all around the country. And so as I'm, now that I'm older, I recognize that it was such a huge benefit and I'm so thankful for it. And now I'm trying to figure out how to replicate that without moving mm. with my own child. Um, because I, I definitely think that I have benefited from being able to um, adjust to different environments and, and get along with different people. You had mentioned that you made your way back to Tallahassee and graduated high school there and then went to Florida State. Um, but of course, you 
then went to law school. And my question is, when did you figure out you wanted to be a lawyer? For me, it was an it was an odd thing. I had always been told I should be a lawyer, but I think girls who tend to have strong personalities usually are. Um, English was my always my strong suit. I was an English lit major, but I did I knew I didn't want to teach um, at the elementary education level. Um, and so it was either that or accounting. And I just I just kind of fell into law and, and really did not fall in love with and figure out what I wanted to do as a lawyer until I um, participated in Cumberland's freshman mock trial competition. And then I was like, oh, OK, well, this this is my thing. This is the thing that that drives me and gives me joy. But quite frankly, I knew I didn't want to be poor. Right. And I knew that I my skill set was reading and analyzing things. And so, you know, there's not much out there for us other than, you know, teaching or going to law school. So it sounds like it was a process of elimination kind of that got you to law school, but then the spark, tell, tell me about this trial uh, experience that got you going. So I had a wonderful mentor who at the time, I guess I was, when I was a first year, he would have been a third year. So he was a chief judge of our trial board, uh, Ricardo Woods, who's still a great friend of mine. And he was my um, BALSA, my Black Law Students Association mentor. And I had no intention on um, doing the, the mock trial competition because people are usually surprised by this, but I am an introverted person. Um, so I would prefer to just like not talk and read, but I'm learning that I'm an extroverted introvert. Um, but he was like, look, you got to do this thing. Maybe you don't like it, but you need to try it. Um, and I was like, you know what? Sure. Right. Like I'm here. I'm away from home. What else do I have to do? I'm going home every day watching Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, so let me do something worthwhile. And um, it was great. I had so much fun and then um, just took off from there. So was that in your first year at Cumberland you did that? Yes. Yeah, so at Cumberland, our freshman competition, the first year is, is in the spring. Um, so you either will do a moot court competition or you have, well, you have the option to either do the moot court competition or the mock trial competition. And so it was in the spring of your 1L year that this this happened and it kind of frankly changed the course of your path. Changed my life. Yeah. It really did. It, it really... Um, it really has changed my life, my family's life. You know, my career has has been completely guided by my love for being a trial lawyer. So, like, even if I wasn't exactly happy at a job, like I always um, had one goal, and that was to try as many cases to build that reputation. And then eventually, it led me to the firm I'm with now, Alexander Schnarr Trial Attorneys, which. Um, you know, if you are a successful plaintiff's lawyer, you're, I have been able to do things in my life that I just never expected with my career um, and to take care of my family at a level that I never expected. So that one decision, you know, that one recommendation, uh, as strong as it was, I say recommendation, it really was like a mandate, <laughs> um, but it really changed my life. I've got a little inside information here about another early experience in your trial career at Cumberland. 
and it's uh, the time that you basically met Judge Roberts. Uh, <laughs> and it sounds like, I don't know if you recall this, the story was recounted, as I understand it, upon your winning the Eddie Olbaum Professionalism Award, which is a wonderful achievement. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if you recall uh, Judge Roberts' story about how, you know, you walk in as a rising 2L for the in-school competition, and it's a serious deal. I would be scared as heck if Judge Roberts is sitting up there, and apparently I would have been in good company with your other competitors, but you were smiling, happy, owning the place. Do you remember that experience? I do. I do. I do. And, you know, he he tells our students about it, and I'm like, you're really ruining my street cred, you know? But I do. I was so excited. I was so excited because, you know, once I I got the bug, I was like, this is going to be my thing. Like I had, and I think a lot of law students have this experience where you're so accustomed to being excellent, right? You were excellent in, in high school and undergrad, and then you get to law school and it's such a shock to you when you have, yes. when you experience mediocrity. And it was, it was one of my first experiences with mediocrity. But what I realized with the advocacy, I was like, oh, wait, this is my thing. And this is something I can excel at. Like, I may not have figured out, you know, studying for these exams and writing these essays in such a way that I'm booking classes, but this thing I can do very well at. And so I was just excited. I knew that I wanted to be on trial team. I knew that I needed to impress him. Um, and I just, I, it's a thing that runs in my family. For some reason, when I'm in an, in an adverse situation, like I, my gut reaction is to smile. That is a wonderful instinct to have. <laughs> and so, so that's what I did. And um, luckily it stuck out in his mind and I, hopefully it carried through. <laughs> I think it did, judging by results. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Speaking of results, while you were a competitor, uh, in law school, you're on an NTC team that made an interesting strategic call about handling an expert witness, which is tough. You know, I, it's always hard to make that decision in NTC or any competition because you feel like, well, you know, it's, it is mock trial. It's not real trial, but also like, this is our chance, you know, this is it. And it's, it's hard to make a, a, a big strategic move that could be very risky. And, and you did, your team did tell us about that. So we, yes, it was, so I guess it was the the spring of 2006 and we were, um, it was the, the case with the, the guy who had dropped the bus driver had dropped the little girl off on the wrong side of the road. And we made the decision, um, the witness that probably should have, that everyone treated as an expert, we made the decision not to, to use them only as a fact witness. I ended up having to, and I, I, the lawyer, the student who I actually was competing against is now a good friend of mine. I ended up having to take my wit, the witness on Fort Iyer to show that he wasn't an expert. And um, so I got to direct him and then cross him and then redirect him. Because as I understand it, you objected that this guy is not an expert, uh, and to your own ex, to your own witness. That's right. <laughs> throw everybody off. Threw everybody off. Yes, and it was so cute because we were competing against two L's, and they like super smart. I mean, Rip Andrews, who he's a he's a partner at a firm here in Birmingham now. I mean, one of the smartest guys I know. But they had just been tearing up the competition on these formulas and calculations. And we knew that, um, but we had not, we had made the decision early on not to treat this witness as an expert 
for that reason, right? Like why allow someone to score those points on cross-examination when you don't really gain much from it? And so I will never forget how big their eyes got. Like I had to turn around and, and not laugh. I mean, their eyes got huge and the, and we're like, well, he absolutely is. And I said, you know, look, judge, if you allow me to take him on board ire, I'll I will establish that this witness is not an expert. And I know Judge Roberts probably was having a heart attack because we had not ever practiced that. Yeah. That's a next level move right there. You know, you get to a point where you're a thrill and you're kind of feeling yourself and you're in that groove. Yeah. And we had it was the final round and I was like, you know, we're going to leave it all out here, you know? And so we did, I did. And the judge was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this guy's an expert. And so there was this old guy on our jury who I swear, I like, I can't believe this guy was still practicing. Like he's the oldest guy I've ever, the oldest lawyer I've ever seen. And we were so worried because my partner was also African-American and we were at Ole Miss. So we're in the middle of Mississippi. We've got an all white panel and they are like old. Like I, like they were around during segregation, you know, Understood. and we, you never know what side Understood. folks fall on. So we're right. there and I'm like doing this thing. And this little old guy was so tickled. He was so tickled. And you know how you can tell when someone's like into you, into what you're doing. Sure. So from that moment on, like we had him and I wasn't really worried about, you know, going forward. Like I, I knew if we had that guy, we were okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the strategic part of it too, because you're like, I'd be glad to direct this witness. And then I'll also cross him for you too on the voir dire. <laughs> I mean, what else do you get that opportunity? Like, it's not going to happen in real life. You know what I mean? So you just mentioned that your partner that year was also African-American. And as I understand it, that that was a matter of some discussion um, on the team. Tell, tell, me, tell us about that. So at that point in time for Cumberland, there were only two coaches. There, there was at that point, he wasn't a judge. So there was Jim and then there was Rasmussen. and um, I think the mock trial world, while we have a long way to go, I think when it comes to diversity, um, I think back then it was very rare to see, you know, two, especially in the South two, you know, all women teams, mm. but you definitely didn't see two teams with lawyers of color. And we were in Oxford, Mississippi, you know, and so there was just that concern. And, and you know, I think as coaches, we all struggle with it. You know, is someone going to have some prejudice against my students that I cannot overcome and that their talent cannot overcome? Um, And we just made the decision, uh, LaRon and I, my partner, I knew Jim is my coach. We're, We're the great friends. I knew that I intended on finishing my law school career being coached by him. And so I did not plan on switching teams. And so I just told Lorana, I was like, if we're going to do this together, then we're going to Mississippi and we just have to decide that we are going to try our best case and we're going to leave it out there. And we cannot control how people feel about us or view us, right? Like all we can do is do our best, which we're going to do anyway you know, we can't control people's hearts and, and, and that's not something. And, and I try to live my life that way. Um, and I try to tell my students that like, you can't control how someone's going to view you. 
You know, all you can control is how you treat people and how you carry yourself in the world. Mm. People are going to think what they think. People are going to um, react the way they react and you cannot control that. And so I just, I really try, and I was, I was really proud of Jim for standing up for us in that decision, because I think that sometimes we get caught up in worrying about those things a little bit too much in this world. So yeah, it was, it, it, it definitely was, and it's been a lesson for me that I have taken into my career, right? That Sometimes we limit ourselves based on how we assume people are going to react to us based on what we what we think their prejudice are going to be. And I think if you limit yourself that way, if you're if you're self-limiting, you will never achieve fully what you set out to achieve. That was, you know, something like 15 ish years ago. Um, I hope we're always moving in a direction of better diversity. It's not great amongst our coaches. It's better amongst our students. thought I'd ask your thoughts on that. It is better amongst our students. I mean, I think we just recruited a team that is probably one-third African-American, which we were really, really proud of, but uh, that took us essentially trying out almost every African-American student in in our 1L class. But it also took, I think that the, 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 the thing about it is when, when you are in a space that is unfamiliar, which for a lot of people of color, you are, you know, oftentimes, you know, the first in your family to, to have attended law school and you're at a predominantly, you know, white institution and then you're thrown into a situation where, again, you've gone from being excellent to now you're in this unfamiliar territory. I think that there is a hesitancy to try something even further outside of your comfort zone. It's like, man, like I'm treading water just being just existing in this institution. And now you want me to do this other thing that, you know, as you know, I think when it comes to trial advocacy, if you're doing it right, you really are struggling with mindset work and, you know, emotional work and, and tapping into your emotions. And there are so many things that I think it's trial advocacy is difficult work, right? If you want to, to excel at it and it's challenging work. And so I think that when you have students who are already challenged a lot, that it's difficult to convince them to then also step into something else that, in and of itself takes a lot of time, but is also going to to challenge them significantly. So I think that the problem we have is we're so busy coaching. In order for us to have to recruit the, 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 the students that we did, it took, you know, reaching out to folks, setting up separate meetings and lunches and bringing people into practice. Like it's an extra effort. And I think you have to be willing to go that extra mile. And I don't think that people are unwilling to do that from a standpoint of their heart. I just think, you know, a lot of us are practicing lawyers. So we've got our practice, we're teaching classes, we've got our families, and then we're also coaching, right? And so I think that it's just something that that doesn't get the attention that it necessarily deserves when it comes to recruiting both students and coaches, because I think that kind of goes both ways. 
you'd mentioned the idea of you know coming to law school and it's a place where everybody is smart all of a sudden. And boy, do I remember that feeling uh, completely, as you say, for sure. I remember being like, whoa, okay, got it. Um, but, you know, uh, candidly, I'm, you know, a white male. And so I don't have the other aspects of that, those feelings that you talked about. And I'm just curious how you talk to your students about, you know, if they're saying, boy, I already feel overwhelmed as a 1L. I'm not sure if I'm going to do this because I certainly have this conversation a lot with my students. But I'm just curious, you know, what you share with them when you're saying, hey, you really should give trial a go. What's your why to that? So for me, I, I use myself as an example and say, listen, like I came to law school thinking like I had done my research and I was going to go into corporate law, right? That was the direction I was heading. And what I found was something that I enjoyed doing, that no matter what job I have, right, there's a common denominator in that. And so um, so I talked to them a lot about that. I, I think that you often, one of the, the, the big issues that we have is authenticity, right? And people not feeling like they can be themselves. And so I think it's important to get students to come to a practice and see how we interact with our students. If, you know, I I guess the, the asterisk on that is if you are a program that preaches authenticity versus, you know, the cookie cutter kind of scripted. And I I will say, I just, I don't think that I was never good on scripts. I mean, judge will tell folks he finally, like he, 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 he had more hair (laughs) when we started, (laughs) when I started on his team than than when we finished, because it just, um, it just doesn't, doesn't work well for me. And so I think that when, when you have a program and folks think that, you know, students are scripted and it's just acting that it's like, man, I'm already at this place where I feel like I can't be myself all the time anyway. And now you want me to go to this team and then you're going to give me a script and you want me to behave a a different way. Like that's not going to be for me. And so I think that it's important to, to, to show that, you know, this is a place where you can be yourself if that is the case for your program. And that's what it was for me. So the, the biggest lesson I learned in terms of our advocacy program was that to be good at what we do, I needed to be myself, right? And not have, you know, I didn't have to code switch, right? Like I'm an army brat. So I am a, you know, combination of all of my experiences. And I often found myself speaking one way to fit in over here and speaking another way to fit in over here when my voice is just kind of middle of the road. And sometimes it's, I mean, look, you know, we moved back to Tallahassee and I, and, and I lived in the hood and, and so like it's, and, and my parents are from the country. And so sometimes I'm country, sometimes I'm a little hood. And then I, you know, I read a lot. So sometimes that is all me and, and all of that, you know, has a place in what I do. And so I think it's important for students to see that they can be themselves and be successful at this thing. And we aren't creating robots. If your program's not creating robots, I think the programs that have the least success with recruiting diverse students are the programs that produce robots. I mean, and everybody has their own thing and then you make the decisions that you make. But I think that those are just that's a factor that dissuades diverse students from participating. I love that learning to be a good trial lawyer is so much about learning who you are you know, uh, and that's a powerful, scary, lifelong endeavor. Uh, it's tough too, <laughs> yeah. right? 
extremely tough. Let's talk a little bit more about Cumberland's program. Just give us an idea of how big the program is. I, I actually have no idea. I just know it's a fantastic program. You know, how many coaches, how many students, how many competitions, that kind of thing. Great questions. Let me think. Roughly, roughly. <laughs> um, so it's really fluid. So we are definitely, I think, the little engine that could, you know, we don't we we don't have coaches on staff. Our coaches are volunteers. So it's it's fluid. I think this semester and, and so we can participate in competitions really based on how many people we can we can convince to mm. to come in and, and do a lot of work for free. Right. So I think this semester we're doing six competitions. We've got about 12 coaches. Two per um, team. We just hired an associate director of our program who is also a coach, Matt Woodham, and, and we're excited about that. We have Ramona Albin, who you know, who's our director, yes. but they are the only two on staff in our in our program. And wow. the rest of us are either adjunct professors, a couple of the younger coaches are um basic skills, adjuncts, basic skills and trial advocacy. And then um, I teach advanced and then judge is an adjunct and he's the head of trial teams. So that's it. I mean, that's, that's. (laughs) You would guess there's hundreds of coaches and everything, you know, from the outside. No, we're like Marshall. We're just, (laughs) we've got a raggedy, you know, locker room. (laughs) So one L's have a chance that you said earlier to do moot court or mock trial, uh, but can they compete externally as a 1L? That's always an interesting question I like to ask. No. Got it. Well, with the exception, I don't know why this has always been an exception. So we, you cannot try out for trial team unless you are a 2L and have competed in a certain number of rounds. And then we have our tryouts in the spring. There is always a, um, a balsa competition that that we probably need to bring under our umbrella, but isn't at this point. And so there have been years where, where one else have competed in the balsa competition. In fact, I think Ricardo competed in the balsa competition when he was a one. I didn't do it as a one L because I don't think we fielded a team, but so sometimes we may have one L there's not a prohibition from the school standpoint, but when it comes to, national mock trial team and the competitions that that we feel students for they will always be 2Ls and 3Ls. Well, let's shift uh away to another major part of your life which is your work as a trial lawyer. So, uh it looks like uh you came out of law school and then started at a couple defense firms, is that right? I did. So, I started at an insurance defense firm doing um primarily state farm auto defense started trying cases like two weeks after getting my license, Wow! Um, which was my goal. There was an adjunct professor of basic skills. I had her husband, but they taught the same night. And so I had applied the year before and hadn't gotten a clerkship. But then after um, she came in and, and they switched a couple of nights, she was like, why didn't you apply to work for us? And I was like, actually I did. <laughs> and so it was fun. Like I knew I wanted to try cases, a lot of cases, and I knew I didn't want to put people in jail. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you're either going to the DA's office or you're going to do kind of volume insurance defense. And mm-hmm. and we, I tried a, a ton of cases and it was a lot of fun. So you're at a couple insurance defense firms, but then you make a move to a plaintiff side firm. And of course I'm at a plaintiff side firm in San Francisco. And so I, I love to hear that, but tell us about that move. 
So I did, I did um, auto defense and then I went to a trucking, a couple of trucking defense firms and then went back to my original firm. It had reformed and some of the younger lawyers who were there as associates had become partners. And so I went back um, in 2012 or right before, yeah, went back in 2012. And then I had a little, I had my little girl. And things are just different when you have children, like your perspective changes a lot. And this firm, Alex, really wanted to change the the reputation. So before I joined the firm, it was primarily a settlement mill and he would ship out the larger cases and he would send out, you know, cases to be litigated. And then he hired four or five young lawyers from Cumberland to try cases. But then I think we, we were trying cases against them and they were like, ah, you know, we, we really probably need someone here um, who can help train us. And so they recruited one of my partners um, and he came over in, let's see, I had Malone in January of 2013. He came over in March. So when I got back from maternity leave, he was leaving to come here. And then In May of 2013, he called me and said, hey, Alex would like to meet you. And I was like, I have no interest in in doing that thing. Interesting. I wasn't a Kool-Aid drinker, but I definitely interesting. Uh, was an institutional like to feel like I was I was pretty hard. You were going to the DRI meetings and all that stuff. Oh, I was like on on several like committees. Like I was on oh, the wow. trucking DRI. Wow. Committee. <laughs> we needed some um, deep proselytization so, to get you to switch sides here. Okay, I want to hear the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well, and then Alex, we are a huge marketing firm. Alex is the billboard king. That wow. is that has been our thing. That's our brand. We've got 2,500 billboards across the wow. Southeast. I mean, we spend $30 million a year on marketing. So we're wow. all over TV. And he was at that point, it was like the lower level commercials. And so he was like jumping off of buildings. Oh, and, boy. and it's just, I was like, I don't, I'm not Fair. trying to associate Fair. myself with this. So he said, well, I get it. Please just come in and meet him. And so I came to the office like mid-May and sat down and met with Alex. And we became like the best of friends that day. It was ve- We had wow. a very, very strong connection and talked about, you know, I was very frank because I always have been about, you know, what I thought the problems were. And so he said, listen, you know, I will give you all the resources you need and do what I need to do to change the firm into, into, a more serious litigation firm, but I have to have serious litigators in order to be able to do that. Like if I'm going to say to folks, we're trying these cases and we win these cases, then I need the types before I can do that. Right. I need the lawyers. And so I made the switch. I I left with a six month old and and just, I mean, we are eat what you kill. So it was a, it was a huge leap of faith. Yeah. And it has been amazing. And so eventually 10 of my partners ended up at this firm from, wow. from that firm. Mm-hmm. A couple of my students who I had brought on. Um, That's cool. And it's just been, it has been an amazing journey. And I'm so glad that I made the decision. It's a different thing, as you know, to experience people right after they have suffered an injury. And that's the thing as a defense lawyer you know, you get a claim after it's been submitted and it's been negotiated and you really are evaluating it in black and white. And I think 
I have become much more like it has made me a better person. Like I am much more empathetic to people, not just, you know, plaintiffs, but also defendants. Like I, I think on this side of things, it is, I'm much more in the business of dealing with people versus evaluating claims, if that makes any sense. It does. And so I really do. It's, it's just been a great journey. I've had an, an amazing experience. Well, you'd mentioned empathy and I was going to ask, and that made me think about it again. What things do you draw from your defense side practice that you now use on the plaintiff side practice? So primarily, uh, it is understanding the process, right? Understanding how adjusters tick, understanding what they need, the information that they need and when they need it, you know, because the reality is, I think for most, they aren't writing those checks, right? For them, it's a business decision and understanding what goes into that decision for them really helps me guide my clients. And I think when, when clients understand the process, Right. When you kind of demystify it and they don't think someone's just in some office in Illinois, just despising them. Right. I think that that really helps with getting cases resolved and and them just feeling a sense of calm and understanding of the process. And then having represented. So a lot of the work I did kind of the last half of my career as a defense lawyer was trucking. And so a lot of what I do here is primarily commercial motor vehicle. And so I think that, and I try to tell my students this, I think that we are all human beings, right? And I don't, people make very bad decisions, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily bad people. And so I try to approach my depositions that way. I try to approach my cross-examinations that way, because at the end of the day, what I have realized on this side of things is while people are afraid of, you know, potentially being injured in a wreck, they also have a fear of being sued for making a mistake, right, that results in a wreck. And so I think our juries have, are very, very empathetic and sympathetic towards defendants. And if you are not trying your cases and understanding the emotions that are going to, to kind of um, play out then you are doing your client a disservice. And there's no way for you to recognize what those emotions are going to be without being able to feel a sense of empathy. And so I I just actually taught a lecture on the role of empathy to my advanced students, the role of empathy in their case analysis. And they were like, what? Why are we talking about feelings? (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I think I have gotten, man, some confidential settlements, but you know, when they're confidential, they're usually good, right? right. Um, (laughs) Gotta have something to keep secret. Based upon information from depositions where I didn't go, I think people have this expectation. It's very odd of me that I'm coming in to be like this bulldog. They get really nervous. And then I, I approach my depositions with empathy. And I think when you do that, people tend to open up more and you get information from them that you then can later use, you know, that's when you go into, I'm more of a pit bull with my fingers and and taking the information and saying, all right, you know, this is what I got. And so this is what's going to happen to you at trial. But I think the results that I have been able to achieve have been a direct result of being able to show empathy towards my opposition. 
I'm sitting over here taking notes. So this is great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you're the managing attorney at your firm. Is it the managing attorney? You the- I was. I, okay. I actually stepped away from that in December. Oh, got it. But okay. in certain, like, so, there are things, places where I'm still listed. And so Alex is being really sneaky about that. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get you back into it. <laughs> but yeah, so I managed the firm from twenty October of 2017 until December of this year. What a huge undertaking. Yeah. I don't know how you'd have time for anything else. Yeah, 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 Spencer. It was it was it was a very interesting three years. I, I well, I will say it it was a time period of growth for for the firm. We grew from about thirty lawyers to a hundred lawyers. We wow. grew, from, you know, four offices in the state of Alabama to offices in Texas and Georgia and so in Little Rock and so. But it was a good experience. I. I I would I would never do it again the way that I did it. <laughs> um, trying to practice and manage a firm this yeah, size exactly. is just it's almost impossible. And I had an associate for a time period, but you know how it is. I mean, they're still your cases, and but it was it was definitely a great experience because I got to mentor, you know, and I still do mentor a lot of our young lawyers. A lot of them are my former students. You know, we try to hire from trial advocacy programs directly because, you know, as you know, trial skills to me are the thing that make the difference between the lawyers who can get a case resolved and who can't, you know, and the value that they get it resolved at. And so we have tried to to hire more from our program. So that was a, 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 a an interesting time period in my life. <laughs> Outside of your work as a trial lawyer uh, and outside of your work as a coach and a professor, uh, what keeps you busy? Yeah, you know, uh, it is. That's a, that's a good question. I During the pandemic, I actually started crafting. Oh, that's cool. I love doing making stuff. Like, um, just stuff on the cricket and making t-shirts and, and it drove my husband crazy. He's like, if you bring one more coffee mug in here, <laughs> but I really, it's sad to say, you know, coaching mock trial is probably my hobby. I miss it when I was managing, honestly, one of the, the motivating factors for me saying, I don't know that I want to manage the firm anymore was that I had to step away from coaching. And because I was traveling so much, I was on the road with Alex and, and we have a ton, we do mass torts. And, and so we, we populate mass torts cases. And so it was, you know, building referral relationships. And, and so I was on the road a lot. This year has kind of been a recovery year, you know, and, and rebuilding my cases and getting back into, this is the first time in three years that I will coach a team myself. Oh, so wow. this year I'm coaching NCTC with an assistant, but this is the first time I haven't like had to coach with judge just because it got to a point where I was like a guest, you know? Yeah. And I just, I'm a firm believer in doing the things that make you happy and it teaching and coaching makes me be happy. Anyway, so that's really my hobby. I don't really, uh, you know, by the time I do all these things and then try to spend time with my family, that, that's that's the 24 hours. Yeah. I just love how over time, basically, you're moving back into coaching more because it seems so common that it goes the opposite way. You know, people kind of move out and they coach less and less and less. And it's just wonderful to see you coaching more. You it's know? tough. It's tough. We've got a, a young staff who are, you know, having, they're in their 
baby having stage. And so, you know, we are trying to figure out how not to lose folks and really expand the staff so that people can participate as they can, you know, what fits their schedules. I will say the one thing that has helped us though, really has been being virtual, right? Because you've got folks who can coach from home and their wives aren't yelling and screaming at them about not helping with the baby. And, you know, they can grab a baby, bring the baby in and, you know, do what we have to do. And so that has been helpful in terms of retention, but that's always been a struggle for us is that that time period in people's lives where their kids are young, they're building their careers, you know, and, and coaching is just, I mean, it's time intensive. It is very time intensive, but so rewarding. Sarah Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Unscripted Direct. It was just wonderful to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I love that. Uh, (laughs) She seems seems like she was fun for you to interview. Like I could tell that you were having fun talking to her. Totally. Completely. Like way more fun than, than you look like you're having when you're talking to me. Oh, that's weird. I don't mean to make that so obvious. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wish I wish I didn't know. <laughs> I can't can't unknow. Uh, no, she she was great, and I think was super fun was hearing about her relationship with Judge Roberts and what it was like when she was on the team. Uh, some of it's serious, obviously, and you know the, the challenges that they face and how she and Judge Roberts dealt with them uh, when it came to race and competition. Right. But so I I loved hearing about her relationship with Judge Roberts, uh, both on the serious stuff and on the fun stuff. We all see him as, as a giant. Uh, we also yep. see him as, as, as a public person in the community. And so to hear right. the perspective of such a respected teacher from one of his students is really cool. Well, totally. And I, he was like texting me things to ask her about, as you could tell, it was so you could just, the exuberance. That's why text. the questions were so good. You were cheating. <laughs> As using as drawing upon the resources I had, but you could tell how qu- he just had like it's like he'd been waiting for the question or something. He just had all these wonderful things to bring up. Um, so I really appreciated that. The other thing I loved was, you know, I'm a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer, as we talked about, uh, Sarah and I, and her time on the defense side. I cannot wait truly to have that beer or that coffee and just sort of learn uh, what she knows and how she really puts that to use in her practice. Because I, as I said in the interview, I'm going to be taking notes and I'm going to copy and use all of it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This was Unscripted Direct. Thanks, folks. Unscripted Direct is mixed and edited by Sam Chase. Thanks to Ray Wang and Kodamarad Muradpour for production support and research, and Stella Sapan for making all things possible. Unscripted Direct.